to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7. In the Sermon on the Plain, in 6, 20-49, we looked at it last week, Jesus revealed that the world is divided into basically two groups of people. If you really wanted to break it down, there are the haves and the have-nots. There is the kingdom of the world in which all the haves live, and there is the kingdom of God that includes all the have-nots, because God doesn't judge based on how much we have to bring to the table but on how aware we are of the fact that we have absolutely nothing to give to God. So we build our lives as people, as haves or have-nots, on one of two things. We build on the rigid, natural way of things, merit, reciprocity, eye for an eye, I get what I earn, nothing more, nothing less, or... We build on the merciful, divine way of things on the gospel. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, and faith. The haves are filled with confidence. They want it all now. They can get it all now if they try hard enough. The have-nots are filled with faith that rests in something outside themselves and know that the truly good things only come later. This world has nothing for them. The haves are in a constant competition. They only have the time to get or to take. The have-nots are free, and so ideally they can love and give, seeking nothing in return. We all have a system or a grid through which we determine who is worthy in our life. Worthy of our time, our respect, our approval, our involvement, our money, our kindness, and on it goes. And we tend to believe that God works on that same scale or something very close to it, right? Surely God would not approve of who we disapprove of and He would not disapprove of who we like. Surely God has the same standards as we do. He likes all the same people and all the same causes that we like and He's against all of our enemies too. But at the root of those conclusions is exactly what Jesus was critiquing in His sermon In chapter 6, the misguided amount of faith and confidence we have in ourselves and in our own understanding of things. Jesus goes right from teaching who it is that is blessed to a miracle that shows it at the beginning of chapter 7. What makes someone worthy of healing from Jesus? How would those who are rich now in this world define those who are worthy of help? From God. What about those who are poor in this world now, who know they have nothing? The issue is this. Only Jesus has the authority to determine who is worthy of God's mercy. And only Jesus has the power to dispense it. So who does Jesus find worthy of His mercy? The mercy of Jesus does not come to those who believe themselves worthy of it but to those who, knowing they are poor, have only faith that He will give it. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask for Your wisdom this morning and for Your power, the power of Your Holy Spirit to help me preach, to speak words through me, that Your Word may be heard in Your church, Father. I pray that You would soften the heart and open the ear of all of us who hear, who need Your Word. And I ask you, Father, to move in this place for the sake of your name. 
I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The introduction to this new section in verse 1 is very significant, actually after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. In other words, Jesus had said what he wanted to say. And the people had heard, they had understood the difficulty, that there was difficulty in receiving his words. All his sayings here in 7.1 is that Sermon on the Plain in verses 20 to 49, which that statement here in verse 1 emphasizes for us the significance of his teaching in relation to the miracles he's about to perform here in chapter 7, starting with this centurion servant. These miracles not only display the points of his teaching, but also his power that shows he truly is the prophet sent from God. A Roman centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers. There were usually 60 centurions in a legion. Centurions were career soldiers responsible for the discipline and administration of those under their authority. They were very well-paid men. And their position in Roman society was held in very high regard. By all appearances, this is one of the haves in front of us. The centurion in the story had slaves. He was wealthy enough to have built a synagogue for the Jewish people in his area. He might have been a God-fearer. That would be a Gentile at this time who was attracted to the teaching and worship life of the Jews without formally converting to Judaism, which is all very interesting again given the point of Jesus' sermon in chapter 6. This was a wealthy man. He's held in high regard. He has a good reputation. He was also apparently kind and compassionate, even to his servants. And he also had great authority relative to his position. He understood authority. Since he not only did Rome's bidding for them, but he also gave commands. And when he gave commands, what he commanded happened. That's what he's saying. So is he rich or is he poor? As Jesus defined it in 6.20-26. to 26. On the surface, again, he looks very rich by the world's standards. He's accomplished and wealthy and benevolent and self-sufficient. But he was also a Gentile. And so as Israel would have understood it, he was at a major disadvantage when it came to the approval of God on him. And now he has a slave. He has this great need a slave who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him in verse 2. If we want to know whether he saw himself as rich or poor before God, we only need to see how he approaches Jesus for help. 
does he expect it? Does he presume on it? Does he believe he's earned it? Does he look to his position and his wealth? Or does he simply hope that Jesus will be merciful to him and heal his servant for him, even though he knows he doesn't deserve that? The irony here is that Jewish leaders are sent by a Roman centurion, a Gentile, to Jesus, a Jewish teacher. But the even greater irony is that Jesus perceives in this Gentile centurion a faith greater than anyone, even in Israel. Jesus says in verse 9, what one would think, right, we would expect that we would find faith like that in Israel. Those are the people that held all the blessings of God, the approval of God, the favor of God on them. He had blessed them. He had made a covenant with them. Surely they are the ones that would have faith. They've had every religious advantage granted to them by God and the rest of the world has not. So surely if there's faith in the world, it would be in Israel among people that God has blessed and favored. But Jesus says in verse 9 that not even in Israel had he found faith like this Roman centurion has. Well, what is faith? And why had he not found it in Israel? Faith is the empty-handed recognition of our own bankruptcy before God and our admittance that he must be merciful to us for we are not worthy of his kindness. The spiritually poor do not presume. They only beg. Jesus says he hasn't found that in Israel, but he finds it here in this Roman centurion who had every reason to think he was rich and deserved God's help, but made no such claim. By the way, completely unlike the Israelite religious leaders who did make a claim on God, who most certainly deserved God owed them or believed that God owed them for their righteousness, for their spiritual devotion. On their scale, on the scale of Israel in this story, which is just the world's normal scale, he did deserve mercy. He was worthy of mercy. Why? In verses 4 and 5. He is worthy to have you do this for Him. For He loves our nation. And He is the one who built us our synagogue. So for those who lived under the law, were building on the law and merit for their standing before God, who believe that God helps those who help themselves, who have earned it, the centurion qualifies. He's done very well, at least by them, right? So that's the question presented to us in the text. Who does God help? Who is He merciful to? Who is worthy of mercy from God? How would the Jews in this passage answer that question? How would the Roman centurion? In verse 6, he apparently thinks that he's asking way too much. He thinks that he's bothering Jesus. He doesn't have any claim on Jesus or Jesus' power and authority, right? The middle of verse 6 there. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. That's what's at the heart of this passage. The centurion's simple trust in the authoritative word of Jesus, which he believes will bring healing. Jesus, I don't have any right to ask you to come to my house. I don't even presume to think I could go to you personally. 
I sent other Jews to you. I, I, I don't think I have the right to come to you and ask you anything. But he still has a need. So what does he say? Where is his hope? Is it in himself and the goodness of his own heart? The favors that he has done for the Jews? That had weight with him. Maybe it would have weight with Jesus. No, it's in the power of Jesus' word. That's where all his hope is. Say the word. Just say the word. And let my servant be healed. He understands how authority works in verse 8. You learn here that he apparently believes Jesus has been sent by God with authority to heal like he had been commissioned by Rome to lead his soldiers. So Jesus would just simply say the word like he does when he wants something done. The disease would have to listen and leave his servant because of the authority Jesus has. That is faith. Faith rests in the word of Christ as the very word of God itself. That's precisely what Jesus calls it. Faith in verse 9. And in verse 10 is the proof that it's faith that truly does receive God's mercy. The servant was healed. The centurion might have known that he was a Gentile and Jewish laws of purity meant Jesus would be unclean if he came to his house. He was unworthy of such a visitation. So just a word would be sufficient. The presence of God's salvation is in Jesus. And it is communicated through His Word. The first example of one who receives help from Jesus, the first recipient of mercy from God, after the Sermon on the Plain, is a rich man before the world. One who looked like he had every right for God to help him but who saw himself as poor before God. Which means what matters is how God views the person. Worthy as the Jews saw him, unworthy as he saw himself, and he receives God's mercy. Israel's house will be forsaken. Jesus said that not even in Israel had he found such faith. Because that's all this really was. That's all that's happening here. That's what the centurion did have. Faith. Empty-handed faith. Faith is not a virtue that we work up by the will. Faith is the gift of God given to us in mercy. The spiritually poor know that the only thing they have is the promise God spoke. That's the only currency they try to use. Through this account in Luke 7, Jesus shows that in Israel, where God had given His law and His covenant, where they had all the advantages of God's blessing and favor, they were the haves. Had no faith. Why? Because they thought themselves rich. They didn't need faith. They needed recognition from God, not mercy. They had forgotten that God's favor was not because they'd earned it, but because God was gracious and had a plan to save the whole world by sending His Messiah through them, the smallest, the least significant of nations. They had forgotten their place. They had forgotten grace. 
They had become so self-focused and self-confident that they had forgotten it was mercy that got them where they were. And they are the perfect picture of the world today, of us as a whole. It might have been mercy in the beginning with God, sure, but now they were earning God's favor. Now they had lived up to the gift that God had given them. And so now they had some currency and God owed them. They thought themselves rich. When you think you're rich, you don't need faith. Think of it. When you're rich enough to get whatever you want, you don't need a gift. Somebody trying to give you a gift would embarrass you. It would offend you. Look at what they did to Jesus for the offense of the cross. There was no need for faith. While this Gentile, this Roman centurion, the farthest away, the last to be expected, who hadn't grown up with God's blessing and favor, who possessed so much materially and yet had no delusions of grandeur about himself that made him look at Jesus and think, he should come and help me. He knows he is poor. He thinks he is poor. And so he can only have faith that Jesus will help. He doesn't even know what to call it, but that's what he has. And he receives God's mercy. The mercy of Jesus does not come to those who believe themselves worthy of it, but to those who, knowing they are poor, have only faith that he will give it. Who is worthy of God's mercy? Beloved, no one. No one is worthy of it. And that's it right there. Our sincere answer to that question, who is worthy of God's mercy, that determines whether we see ourselves as rich or poor before God. We're all poor. The question is whether or not we all know it. That's what it means to be poor. To not have any delusions of grandeur about what you may be able to give to God that He would then credit you with something and be in your debt. We must receive His gift of forgiveness and righteousness by faith in His Son. We must never stop having faith for our righteousness. It isn't just mercy and grace They didn't just get us in the door. They get us all the way home, or we don't get home. Are you a have or a have not this morning? For those of you that might be in this room who have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, what about you? If you think about it at all, are you living your life hoping, maybe even believing, just somewhere in the back of your mind, that God accepts you if you try your best? If you just do the best that you can with what you have, God will accept you. He'll honor that. He'll recognize that. That's spiritual currency you're hoping to use to buy God's approval. God's word to us in Jesus tells us that you're living with way too much self-confidence. You have way too much. 
You think that you have it within you to earn God's mercy and forgiveness and acceptance by your performance. But not only will you never have enough of that to please a holy God, not just some old white-haired man in the sky that has a lot of rules. That's not who we're talking about pleasing. But God, three times holy, which is just a picture, not like just three, but indescribably holy. No man can see Him and live. He dwells in unapproachable light. That's who we're talking about pleasing by occasionally choosing to do what is good rather than what is bad. Not only will you never have enough, you don't need anything. You don't need anything. Jesus came to provide you, to buy for you with His money, His righteousness, His spotless sacrifice, His resurrection, your forgiveness to wash away your sin and your guilt, all of it. He came also to perform the obedience that God does require, this holy God, but that you and I can't possibly pull off. He did that for you also. To be received by Him now as a gift. So only faith can receive it because faith isn't trying to give God anything. Faith is just staying there, is just sitting there saying, I can't come to you. Would you please speak your word for me? That's faith. I know you can do I can't come to you. I don't have anything. But would you come to me? And he will never turn away. One who prays such. Ever. To receive Jesus is to be like this centurion and give up the hope that you're worthy. And just bank on his mercy. God's salvation is yours for the taking in the word of Jesus. So stop being rich. File for bankruptcy at your spiritual bank. And receive Christ. Now, Christian, what about you, though? Believing, brother or sister, this morning, what about you? Do you still see yourself as the beggar in all this? Or over the years, have you earned a different status? Have you been able to put back some capital into your spiritual bank account over time that you think now, yes, it was mercy in the beginning. Yes, it was all grace in the beginning. And thank God for that. But now I'm also kind of a part of this. Job's friends. When Eliphaz saw Job's suffering and saw that Job would not uh, did not believe that he had sinned. And so Job was saying, I don't know what I've done that all this calamity has come upon me. He's looking for an answer. And one of his friends, Eliphaz, says, isn't your piety your confidence? And the integrity of your life your hope? What, is, what grid, what understanding is Job's friend Eliphaz building on? Isn't the fact that you've lived a good life your, your, your confidence in it? Like, you, you've done good, you've not sinned. Why don't you look at that as the, as your hope? Go to God with that 
go to God and say, I have no right to be suffering. I have integrity. I've done well. And beloved, I wonder, God would say that Job's friends did not speak rightly of him. And I wonder, have we accepted the folly of Job's friends when it comes to our relationship with God? When you hear that question, what do you say? What do I say? Right? Isn't the integrity of your life your hope? Isn't your attempt to honor God what you have hope in? No. No. Why? Because I could do it right from here on out and it won't be enough. It's not the way God says I'll be accepted. So I have to quit believing that. I, I have to file for bankruptcy. I have to give up all my claims. I have nothing. Don't fall into their trap. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that at some point you don't need the cross as much as you did before. I don't know of any Christian that has ever said, right, I don't think I need the cross as much as I used to. It, it, it doesn't come out like that. The heart is deceitful, beloved. Like we, we don't really understand ourselves. Sometimes we don't realize the game that we're playing. It just comes out in the, the way that we think and the way that we respond to things and the way that we feel about things. And Jesus would set you free from that. Why would we stiff arm the rest he means to give? He will work piety in us. He will work the desire to do good works in us through his spirit because we are his child. I have this back and forth ongoing all the time with, with my little boy Carmine. Not a back and forth like in a mean way, but every time, and I guess I'm kind of bragging on him a little bit, but I, I don't mean it that way. And he doesn't know I'm talking about him. He's down helping with Christy and the kids, right? Every time I buy that boy food, he thanks me. Thank you for the food, Dad. No, buddy, you're my son. I buy food for you because you're my son. Because I want you to eat. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe in his mind he thinks like he didn't, wasn't going to get the food. And I did him a favor. Right? No, that's my son. I will feed him until he's 80 if he doesn't have food. Right? I mean, I'll be long gone, but you get the point. Right? There's no transaction happening there. That's my boy. I love that little boy. Like you love your children, right? I, I'm buying you food. It's okay. You, you, this is not payment. Like I'm not, I just love you. I want you to be okay. I want you to have food in your belly. I want you to be healthy and strong and all these things. But maybe, you know, maybe in his mind he's thinking, I don't know if I deserve this or not, so I better thank my dad. I don't know. But I would say this. There's no transaction taking place in my salvation that makes God be nice to me. He was nice to me when I gave him nothing but the sin that makes me deserve condemnation. That's all I had. I didn't have potential. I didn't have you know, if you just help him a little bit, he'll make you proud. I don't have that. Right? And everything I get from God is pure gift. 
And beloved, that's how we're meant to live. That's how we're meant to think. We, we, most of us haven't even tried yet to see what kind of life that type of rest and faith might produce. Why? Because we're so certain we have to do our share. You know, the bill's paid. You're not doing your share when you do the good works you are commanded to do. You're showing that this God of grace gave you everything and now you need nothing. Which is why the ethics of the kingdom sound as insane as they do in the Sermon on the Plain. Don't fall into the trap of Job's friends. Don't stiff arm the mercy of Jesus. Blessed are the poor. Be poor. Our only prayer is that of the centurion. I'm not worthy to come to you. But if you would speak your word. If you would just speak your word. That's all we need Jesus to do. Because the answer in Christ to that is always, Oh yes. Yes. We are not accepted because we are or might become worthy. But because Jesus is worthy for us. Faith, the gift of God, is the only currency of the spiritually poor. And it is the poor in spirit that God calls blessed.